Now today we continue, um, get back to our uh, series, the very brief series on the vision and mission of the church. It's called We Are Wildwood. We've said this a couple weeks now. When we say we are Wildwood, it is not a rallying cry to say, look at how awesome we are. It's not to say Wildwood's logo is the greatest thing in human existence, and so buy the t-shirt and get the collar. and all, Nothing wrong with any of those kind of things. Nothing wrong with bumper stickers. Nothing wrong with shirts that have the logos on them. I have one of those. I wear it often. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not why we exist. We exist to accomplish what it is that God desires for us to accomplish. So we've been laying that out for us. Very briefly, the purpose answers the question, why do we exist? We come up with your purpose. When you come up with your vision statement, we're saying it answers the question who we are ultimately called to be and what we are ultimately called to do. And then mission answers the question, how do we plan on accomplishing what it is that God's called us to accomplish? How do we plan on becoming who it is that God has called us to become? We said this, we are exist in existence to glorify God and accomplish his local and global purposes. We looked at some passages that relate to that division. Uh, what are we ultimately called to do and be? To make mature and equipped followers of Jesus who live with gospel purpose. And we looked at the scriptures for those. Two weeks ago, we did part one of the mission. How do we plan to do it? And that is by moving hearts. And we looked at some of the Psalms in particular. Now, the one question that I left out of that sermon, and it was right there in bold, on my paper, in my sermon notes, I just didn't look at it. But the one question for us to ask uh, when it comes to uh, my heart being moved is this question. Am I consistently present on Sunday mornings? This is a great question to ask, whether that be online or whether that be here in person. And if you are here and consistent every day, great, that's part one. When we say consistently present, we mean that in the fullest sense of the word. Have you ever heard this, husbands? I need you to be with me. Never have I ever heard that once in our marriage. Because I've always given Judith 100% of my attention every time that we are together. It is one thing to be physically present. It's another thing to be present. To be their mind, body, soul, and spirit. I'm with you. And so our goal on Sunday mornings is that our hearts, the whole of who we are, mind, will, and emotions, all collectively are being moved by God, being moved from primarily this delusion of hope in self to the certainty of hope in Christ and being moved away from the delusion that this world has everything that I need to satisfy the depths of my soul to the certainty that the life to come is going to do that very thing. That's the primary ways we want to be moved each and every week. But we said we're going to intentionally and unapologetically go after your mind, your will, and your emotions every Sunday. Are you consistently present on Sunday mornings? This is one, we believe, great way that is necessary, it's essential for our spiritual growth and maturity. So today we look at caring deeply. I don't think anyone will disagree with this statement, but let's just see. Most people in life want to be cared for. Can you think of anyone that you know, be it someone you know intimately or someone you've heard of, can you think of anyone that said, you know what I would really like the most? I mean, money is, is fine and fame is okay and, and, and all that. But you know what I would like the most is I would like for no one on planet Earth to care about me. 
That's what I wake up in the morning longing. That's what I pray for. God, would you cause everyone in the world to not care a single thing about me? How many, though, do we know that say, God, I don't feel as though anyone cares, and it tears us up. We all want to be cared for. And we all want to care for someone else. Is it not a miserable relationship when you are involved in a relationship with someone in which you perceive they have no need whatsoever of me? I have not a whole lot to offer in this relationship. They don't need my wisdom. They don't need my discernment. They don't need my, my ear. They don't, they don't need anything at all from me. Is that not a frustrating relationship? We all long to be cared for, and we all long to care for someone else. Now, I would use that term long intentionally because I am convinced this is a God-given drive that is inside of us. It is not simply, it, it's not selfish. It, it can turn into that, um, but, but it, is, it is a God-given drive because God cares deeply. And so he gives us that right there. He gives us this little image. Now, we've already talked about it in the service already. Three primary images that God gives us of his relationship with us. Two are familial and one is from more agricultural, but they all talk about a depth of intimacy. What is God trying to get across to us in each of those images? That I care for you. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, and we won't look at it this morning, comes from Peter. And it says to cast all of your cares or your concerns or your worries or your anxieties, all of those would fit that, cast all of them upon the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. Now, I know I'm walking in dangerous ground right now because I know that there are many of us in the room right now that have not experienced this kind of care from God in the last year. When we look at the circumstances of our life, it is a bit more difficult to convince ourselves that God deeply cares about us. Some of you are coming off of some very, very difficult and trying financial circumstances. And it's not because you've been foolish and unwise. It's because of the circumstances of life have caused your finances to almost come to complete and utter ruin. Some of you have had relationships that have dissolved that have gone so south and it has caused great weight and anxiety and even depression upon you. And it's not because you didn't try. Some of you have had work uh, that, that, that you were pleased with, you, you were excited about, and either you have been removed from that job or the work itself has become almost distasteful in your mind. It, it's become so blah, so bland that there's there's nothing there anymore that brings you any level of, of significance. Um, uh, uh, you, you feel as though your work is so trite. There are many areas of life that many of us would say, I, I'm just not sure that God cares. And I know that when I just say those words, you're going, yeah, thanks, preacher. I'm glad you're saying that. But that's not been my experience in life. But I want to say it again. Here's what the scriptures teach. Cast all of your cares, anxieties, stresses, struggles, angst, concerns, cast all of that on him, on a person. Not your spouse, not your child, not your parent. It's good to share that with them, but cast them on the person of Jesus. Why? 
Because whether or not you actually believe this, I want to tell you what this book says, and it says it over and over and over again. He cares for you. And while that may not be what you seem to be experiencing, I'm telling you, he cares. So try him. Cast your cares on him. Go directly to him with your frustration with him. Don't hide it from him. You feel as though that you're the ant. He's got the, the giant glass. He's trying to, you feel as though, tell him. Because he cares. Now, this is the ultimate reason why we are called to care deeply for one another. It's because God cares deeply for us. He's given it to us in pictures. He's given it to us in an internal drive that we can't just shut off. If we try to shut off uh, uh, caring for others and being cared for by others, um, uh, then typically we become so hardened that we become criminal. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look at three passages. The first two we'll walk through as quick as we can, although we've got to spend a little bit of time. Uh, but the third one is where we want to park and get in this because it really gets the heart of what we're trying to get across when we say care deeply for one another. Romans chapter 12, I'm going to read just verses 9 and 10. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, let love be genuine. Many theologians believe that what Paul is going to do now is he's going to just simply unpack for us what love looks like, as he does in 1 Corinthians 13. Let love be genuine. I love this. Now, this term genuine originally meant to be a poor actor. In other words, you weren't good at faking it. So the actors in that day and age who didn't have a whole lot of experience, this was the word that was used for them. They couldn't fake it. They're too genuine. They couldn't act out enough because they just simply were themselves when they're on stage. And that's not what you're paid to do on stage. You're paid to be somebody else, to, to, to get across something else. This love right here, you just can't fake it. Let love be unfakeable. What it does not mean is that it is effortless. That would be nice. I would love it if I woke up in the morning and I had to put zero effort whatsoever into being a husband and a father. Do you know how easy that would make my life? If I could read the thoughts of Judith, how blessed would life be? If I could anticipate every move of each of my children, how excellent would that be? No, instead what I have to do is I have to work. I have to do awful things like listen, pay attention, ask clarifying questions, pursue, do all the things that God does with us. Let love be genuine. Don't fake it till you make it, so to speak, but work your tail off at it. Can I ask you this question? If you have a sibling or a friend or a spouse or whatever, somebody in your life that carries a significant weight, meaning that you care a lot about what it is that they think, would you feel honored if you knew they were working their tail off to love you? 
trying to find out how can I love you better? I'm not saying would it take away all frustration. I'm asking you, would you feel honored and valued, appreciated if you knew that they were working hard to love you in your language? That's what he's saying. Let love be genuine. Go work. If you're not exhausted at times in trying to love those that are closest to you, you're probably not trying. Let love be genuine. Let it be without the ability to fake it. You're just really bad at it. Leon Morris says this in his fabulous commentary on the book of Romans. Listen to this. We should be clear that love is quite different from sentimentality. True love involves a deep hatred for all that is evil, for evil can never benefit the beloved. There will be special hatred for the evil in the beloved and the evil that touches the beloved. But Paul expresses in general, he is saying that the person who really loves with the deep fervor of Christian agape will have a holy hatred for everything evil. That's what he says afterwards. He says, I love be genuine, and he says, hate that which is evil. Now, what does that mean? It means that you hate everything evil that is happening to that person. You hate the evil that they do. You hate any, anything that is evil that is not coming from God, that you have a genuine hatred for it. So now, can I just get real with you for a moment? True love confronts. Because true love hates evil. Hear me, hear me loudly and clearly. We want to be slow, very, very slow to reach the place of judgment. Jesus is clear about that. However, we want to be quick to hate what is evil. So when one of my sons, per se, just says, hey, Dad, um, I want you to know the most loving thing that you can do for me is to just let me go off and do whatever I want, whenever I want. Because if you don't tolerate everything in my life, then you don't love me. I'm going to tell him, son, that's just stupid. The most unloving thing I could do for you would be to never confront you on things that are evil and things that are going to be damaging to you and to others. It's the most unloving thing that I could do. Now, if you confront your wife, your, your husband, your, your child, your friend, your, your boss, if you confront them on every single sin that they ever commit, you're a moron. Okay, there's this whole, you know, take the log out of your own eye thing, and there's what... Well, don't confront everything, but if you're never confronting, it's probably a good indication that you're really not loving. Jesus clearly gives us a balance here in the scriptures. There ought to be times in which we are going directly to our brothers and sisters, whether that be that they are related in blood or not. We're going directly to them in, in, in order to confront on sin. And we're also, at other times, just overlooking we're turning the other cheek. We're not going to take offense. <laughs> I hope you're not easily offended. If you are, it's going to be a tough life for you because the world is offensive. I'm offensive. You're offensive. My house smells offensive. I, offense is good. 
Um, so in one sense, yes, grow some, th- some thick skin. Uh, yes, in one sense, but uh, confront and overlook. Now, rather than giving you six principles to know when to confront and when to overlook, I'm going to say this. Would you pray about it? Would you go to the Lord? And would you say, God, is this something that you want me to confront or is this something you want me to overlook? And then just wisely discern how much damage is being caused in this. I'm not going to confront my son every time I hear a white lie. Not every time. But when he is flat out rebellious, I'm going to confront. Now, I want to do it in a loving fashion, respectful fashion, honoring fashion, but I'm not always good at that. Hold fast, he says in here. Hold fast means to glue, to become attached to doing good. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, or hold fast to what is good. So abhor that which is evil. Abhor it in me, abhor it in others, abhor the fact that it's in the world at all, and then cling to what is good. Get glued to what is good. Pursue what is good. Constantly come back to what is good. Set your um, uh, gaze on that which is good, it means here. So hold fast means that don't walk away from, from, uh, from, from doing good. Notice in here he says also, it talks about brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. This is a great term. Um, as far as we can tell, nobody else was talking about this in any other place in, in, in human history. In this. There were other relationships in which they were talking about how close one could be, maybe war, etc. But Paul was the first one that we can find that is writing about this type of affection for others that are not blood relatives. That he is saying you ought to have this kind of affection for one another. Not just inside the walls of your home, but inside the walls of this group called the church. Not just the group that, collect, that meets collectively on Sunday mornings, but the group that comes into your house as well. Those that would call themselves attenders, members of Wildwood Church, Paul says this, love them with brotherly affection. Now, can I again be just really honest with you? If you grew up with a sibling, if, if you had someone that was even remotely close to you in age in, in, in your house, um, then you know you did not make it through life without fighting. It just didn't happen. Because when you get that close, nobody wounds you like your family. Now, I knew exactly which buttons to push from both my older brother and my younger brother. I knew exactly which buttons to push. And by and large, they tried to avoid those buttons because they're really good guys. I, on the other hand, found it wildly entertaining to try and push each of them at various moments. My older brother, on one occasion, let me know in no uncertain terms that that was no longer acceptable. He did that with five fingers that came across my nose. Love one another with brotherly affection means you're going to fight. You're going to have disagreements with one another. And if you never have a disagreement with someone else in the church, it probably means that you're just not that close. That you're not taking a risk on anything. That you're not divulging enough information. You're probably keeping too many things close to, your, to the vest. Love one another with a brotherly affection. When you fight, go work it out. Man, alive, I'm, we'll take a risk here. When you get into trouble in, in your church relationally, don't take your toys and go home. 
Don't pick up and go to another church. You may find that that's the best option. You may need to do that. You, you may part ways. Paul and Barnabas parted ways. They came to such a sharp disagreement, it was necessary. At times, it is necessary to do that. But don't do that to start out with. Try and work it out. Have brotherly affection for one another in the church. When you fight, seek to confront one another in love, taking the log out of your own eye, acknowledging your own sin, being humble before one another, and seeing how it is that you can work through this rather than saying, let me tell you about those people. They don't care. Why don't they care? Because they didn't give me what I wanted. It's okay to part ways with the church. Make that your last option. Finally, he says, honor one another, which simply means that we as God's people are to seek the honor and exaltation of someone else, not ourselves. Turn very quickly to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, uh, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Caught means that you are going to be uh, overtaken by surprise. It's not something that you saw coming, but when you got into it, you got caught and could not get yourself out of this particular sense. So in other words, it's something that's ongoing in here, but it's not something that you deliberately set out to do initially. Once it becomes addictive, oh, you find all kinds of ways to get there. Uh, carry, meaning those of us that are spiritual and restore them, um, we, we, in this way, you're, you're carrying one of those burdens. It means literally to take up and to hold one another's burdens. Uh, one word of caution is this. Do not ever be the only person that is trying to carry the burdens of someone else. You can't do it. And there are some people in life who have burden after burden after burden. I'm not saying they have less value. I'm not, I'm not making any statement of, 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 of judgment and condemnation. I'm saying there are some that have more burdens than others, and, and you will be worn slap out if you try to carry someone else's burden all by yourself. It's a collective body here. It's a group of people that are, that are, that are uh, ch um, chipping in to, to collectively carry the load. And then finally, he says this, that you're going to fulfill the law of Christ. So if anyone is caught in transgression, you who walk with the Spirit should go to them because you're abhorring what is evil, you're clinging to what is good, you're going to them without judgment first, you're going in love, trying to restore them to it, you're going to go and <clears throat> carry, help carry the burden. And in this way, it says you're going to fulfill the law of Christ. What does he mean by law of Christ? Both John and Paul tell us that Jesus said, the new command that I give you is that you would love one another. This is the law of Christ, to love one another. And then he tells the world, hey world, you have permission from me to make judgments about me based on how my church loves one another. So how well they love one another is the litmus test as to whether or not they belong to me. How do we love one another? That's what we're talking about. Finally, if you have your copy of the scriptures with you, it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says this in verse 7 and 8.
But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Now, Paul is writing here, and he's writing with some other workers, and he's writing to a church that he had helped to plant, and, and then he would leave, and he'd go to other churches, and so he would get these churches started and move on. He would leave them into the hands of some very capable shepherds and elders that they would appoint as they made their way through. He's writing back to this church that he really loves, and he says, hey, we could have been a burden to you. We could have demanded a whole lot more out of you financially, et cetera, but we didn't want to do that. So we were kind of working on other things. And he says this, we were gentle among you. It's not the same word that Jesus uses about himself when he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. It's not the exact same word. It's a cousin word of it. It's rightly translated gentle. But it's rightly used in the context of a woman. And Paul goes on to flesh this out, what it means to be gentle in here to be honorable, to be respectful, to be caring. to be, And he gives us this picture of this mother. We were gentle among you like a mother who is nursing her child. Now, what is a mother doing at that point? She is caring deeply for this child, feeding this child from her very self. She is giving up something that is hers in order to, for the benefit of this particular child. Why? Because that's what moms do. And if you've got a mama, you know what I'm talking about. Dads are great. I love my dad. Godliest man I've ever known in my life. Most humble man I've ever known. Love the dude dearly. I'm telling you, though, my mama is different. And I'm not just a mama's boy. Mama will love you like no one will ever love you. She will care for you like no one will ever care for you. Why? Because that's what mamas do. And this is what God is trying to get across to us. On the one hand, he's... In other passages, he talks about, yeah, disciplining with, with the discipline of a father, but there's this, this nurturing of a mother. Both of these are who God is. And when the two, husband and wife, come together, we get to see a much better picture as to who God is. So right here, he's drawing our attention to, we uh, dealt among you in, in a gentle fashion, sacrificing something, giving of our very selves for your benefit. It was not for our ego. It's not so that we could step back and go, woo, look at all that is going on in Thessalonica. Aren't we impressive church planters? How big is your church? Because Thessalonica's rocking it, man. They're up in like the 300 range. And we started with zilch. Little Bible study, two people. Paul's just saying, I wanted to give to you. I wanted to care for you. I wanted to nurture you. I wanted you to be nourished and fed and grow. My focus was on how I could benefit you, not how you could benefit me. Can I give you permission if you ever get a sense that any pastor at Wildwood Church is operating from the vantage point of, 
you're really here for me? Would you please come and tell me? Because if we do that, we've got it completely backwards. And that's why we can say things that sound extreme, like if there's another church that's a better fit for you, we want you there. Because we care about you. How about you? Do you care for the people in this church like that? Are you being cared for like that? Do you have folks that just show up in your life and they just say, I'm here for you? I want to help you in whatever way I can. If there's something that I have that you need, I want to part ways with it on my end. I want to sacrifice because I care deeply about how you experience life. And that's going to require effort. It's not going to happen naturally. I don't wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I cannot wait today. I bet there's 75 people whom I could give to. I don't wake up and just out of the bed say, yes, I can't wait to sacrifice. I say, Lord, would you bring me to a place where I care more about people than I care about myself? I have to pray. I have to ask God to do a work in me. How about you? Is it on your radar? Is it part of your routine where you're saying, God, make me the kind of person like Paul is talking about here that, that cares for someone, not like, a, not like a wet nurse, not like just some nurse who just has a job to get through for the day. This is my very own child. And I'm willing to go through all the pains of birth and all the pains that come with raising children at each and every stage of life. Physical demands are at their greatest when the kids are young and you're just trying to keep them alive at that point. You go to bed at night thinking, I succeeded. They're still breathing. They get older and the demands become a little bit more. And then finally when they're teenagers and they go out and they're outside, now you just, Lord, I, just keep them safe. Do you, do you care for people like this? And are you being cared for like this? If not, I, I want to I beg you to try it out. I want to beg you to try what's called a community group here at the church. You get involved in a community group, and it is a group of people that are meeting together. And sometimes your initial starting point, the only thing you have in common is the fact that you both love Jesus. And you're trying to figure out a way to support and care for one another. And just watch. I'm just telling you, I've seen it happen over and over and over again. Something happens in that group, and you begin talking and discussing and praying, and you begin doing life together, and somehow or another, you, you find out you're thinking about these people with regularity. You're, you're calling, you're asking them questions, and they, you find out they go in the hospital, and you go visit the hospital, and you bring them food, and you find out that they got a trouble with a kid, and so you're gathering around, you're praying. And if you're not being cared for, join a community group. It's the best place at Wildwood to get connected with other people. Notice he says in here, we were gentle like a, like a nurse in the taking care of us, so being affectionately desirous of you. Just let those words sink in. Being affectionately desirous, my heart and mind is moved and stirred into your direction. 
It's toward you. It's God that's stirring it up, giving us his characteristics, his likeness towards other people. Why? We were ready to share with you not just the gospel of God, which is of vital importance. It's of eternal importance. If we don't give people the gospel, it usually is an indication of how little we care about them. Not just the gospel itself, but we're also desirous of giving our very selves towards you. This is what it means to care deeply for someone else. Not that I'm just giving them profound wisdom and discernment and insight and advice. All that is good. I am giving you me. Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 12. You belong to one another. I want to close with this. It has been my consistent experience here at Wildwood that this is one of the most caring congregations around. I am not trying to compare us to other churches. I'm not trying to say uh, uh, we are Wildwood. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm saying that it has been my consistent experience that you get cared for. Um, I, I told you this last week, but here uh, recently with folks that were moving out of town, and then the, the gentleman that Bill Cox earlier, his wife told me earlier, just look at that door, David. And that door was filled with cards. I was talking with another couple who also had a loss in their life. So we kept getting texts and phone calls and letters from people that we don't even know. But they're here, part of this church, and they're just reaching out to care. Anytime I go out, it, it happens probably three, four times a year when I go out into the public uh, sphere, and then someone will ask me, so what do you do? And I try to avoid that question as often as possible because it generally, generally just makes people uncomfortable to know that you're a pastor. And they feel like, oh, man, I can't cuss anymore. I can't, you know, whatever it is. So I try to avoid it at all costs, and I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in sales. <laughs> uh, insurance, so that's what I'm in. Um, so I just say I'm a pastor, and they'll say, well, what church? And I'll say, it's a church called Wildwood. It's over on the corner of Oxbow, and they say, oh, I know Wildwood. And I'm telling you, I get stories regularly throughout the year of people that say, golly, Man, that church was really great to us. Well, how come you left? Well, theologically, we just had a little difference of opinion. We had this other. Or this is the one that I'm hearing more, more often now. Well, they, they, they confronted me on my sin. I'm putting those words in. They don't use those words. It comes out differently with different language. Why would you care? And so here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to consider what it's like to walk into the doors of Wildwood in the same way that it is walking into the city of Tallahassee. Tallahassee is a great city. It has been a, a wonderful place um, uh, in many ways. I will tell you as an outsider years ago, I mean, I've been here seven years now, but as someone coming in from the outside, here's what we learned. In Tallahassee, people have relationships that they've had for years and years and years and years. And so they've had relationships with folks that go to a great deal of depth. And that is a good thing. But what it means is that when somebody comes from the outside and tries to break into that group, the people are friendly, but they have no need for new relationships. Because all their relationships are already filled. And so again, nobody is rude. Nobody is saying, get away from me, you wicked sinner. They're just saying, 
I don't have the bandwidth by which to make more investment into other people. Here's all I want us as a church to consider. Consider what it's like for folks moving in town and the same principle applies moving into a church. When moving into a new church, it's a good thing if you've had relationships for 20, 30, 40, 100 years with other people. It's good. But can I get you to think about this? How can we as a church think about how we can bring others into us? How can they experience what it is that we are currently experiencing? As opposed to backing up and continuing to experience what it is that we have and hoping that they find it somewhere else out there with some other group. How do we invite others in? Because everybody wants to be cared for. And everybody wants to care. So why would keep being you? The only thing I'm asking us to change is let's open our eyes and find out who doesn't feel as though yet they belong. That's what Jesus did. And that's what he wants us to do. And that takes work.